You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, Russia, Iran and Turkey prepare to gather to sort out Syria like Syria hasn't suffered enough. My guests Mary Dijewski and Matthew Green will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the mystery of the White House staffer who has shocked nobody at all by revealing that their boss is an impulsive buffoon, the fears that keep 21st century Germans awake at night and... Gary Hart is the man to beat in 88. If we hold ourselves to those highest standards, then the voters cannot do otherwise. Senator, I want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her? You can't be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that. Uh, I, I am serious, sir. The upcoming film which will remind viewers of the dim, distant past of 30 years ago when taking liberties with one's marriage vows could disqualify a presidential candidate. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist with The Independent and The Guardian, and Matthew Green, author and journalist, uh, author most recently of Aftershock, The Untold Story of Surviving Peace. Welcome both. First of all, it is tough to imagine much at this point which would fill Syrians with yet more foreboding, but the prospect of tomorrow's meeting in Tehran, at which their future will be discussed by Vladimir Putin, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Hassan Rouhani, might do the trick. The Russian, Turkish and Iranian presidents all command troops which have operated officially and otherwise in Syria and all have interests in the country which coincide irregularly with those of the average Syrian. Um, Mary, how excited should Syrian people be about this summit? Well, I think on the one hand, they should be extremely excited and extremely worried. And on the other hand, they should maybe be slightly less worried because it's happening at all. Because in my view, it would be considerably worse if those three powers were not talking. Um, and if um, the Russians and the Syrians between them had launched an attack on Idlib, which it looked as though they might be about to do Still earlier this week. doesn't really look without... like they're not. No, but the timing, at least we're having this meeting before any sort of um, all-out attack has been launched. So there is still possibility, just about, of holding off. Uh, Matthew, the th- of the many things which I confess have confused me while trying to figure this summit out is the question of whether these three countries are even all on the same side in Syria. Well, it sounds like Turkey is is certainly not on the same side as the Iranians and the Russians. Except Uh, when they are. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to be able to untangle this for you, I'm afraid. At least one of these countries is going to end up at war with itself in Syria at some point. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the, the, the whole concern is obviously that this offensive is poised to take place in Idlib, which could lead to, I mean, according to some of the reports violence and and displacement even on a scale not seen yet in the seven-year conflict which would be pretty horrific given what's happened up to now Um, but I suppose stepping back looking at the bigger picture there's Putin again sitting there moving the chess pieces I mean you've got to hand it to him he's played hardball and he's getting results and I, I mean I hate to say that but look at Crimea look at Syria he's flexed Russia's muscles in a way that you know we haven't seen in many many years and it's it's frightening to see the kind of almost lack of response or incoherent response 
from the West. On the particular subject of uh, Russia, Mary, which is, of course, your, your special subject, what at this point, as far as it's possible to tell, does Russia still want in Syria? Because their involvement has now gone back some considerable while. We, we've been through talks and summits before at which there's been discussion of, uh, is this now the beginning of the end? Is the war about to be drawn down? Are we about to see what a post-war Syria is going to look like? That never seems to quite happen. Uh, does Putin have a a long-term vision for Russia's involvement in Syria in his head, do you think? I don't know, but I do think that there are two things maybe he is trying to prevent happening. Um, one of them, um, which so far he's been quite successful at, is trying to make sure that Russia is not sidelined anymore um, after pretty much 20 years in which Russians feel that they've been sort of um, left off the international map. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is that what a lot of people see as Putin's main aim, which is keeping Bashar al-Assad in power at all costs, is not, I think, primarily what Russia is about, and it hasn't been. What Russia is about is trying to prevent Syria descending into the sort of chaos um, that Russia saw as happening in Iraq and Libya after outside, in those cases, Western their, interventions. Their intervention so far has been a partial success on that score. And there's all sorts of things going on um, behind the scenes. It's <laughs> the big absentee, of course, at this meeting, um, and how could they possibly be there, given that it's going to be in Tehran anyway, um, is, of course, the United States. But behind the scenes, there's been some rather strange cooperation on the ground in terms of aid convoys and sort of unofficial no-fly zones, um, and the Americans are sending what seems to have been, you know, not not for the first time and not uniquely here, um, very confused messages that on the one hand, they are sort of on the quiet, um, doing a bit of cooperation. Um, they've also talked about um, withdrawing a lot of the troops, special forces that they've got there. On the other hand, the official message is, no, we're not getting out, we're in there for the long haul, we're not going to let, you know, Russia um, get away with lording it over this territory. So it's that that is very confused. Uh, Matthew, is there or should there be a concern that what this meeting between Russia, Iran and Turkey basically is, is everyone getting their excuses straight in advance before Idlib gets pulverised as planned? It sounds like that's very possible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the Russians have not sh sh shied away from using force uh, when it suited them. And they've, do they've done so along with the Syrian army with very little repercussions. So there doesn't seem very much to stop that same uh, strategy playing out again. OK, well, let's move along uh, and look now at Washington, D.C. and the parlour game currently consuming American politics and media and indeed for the next few minutes this programme, namely guessing the identity of the author of an anonymous op-ed published yesterday by The New York Times. The somewhat self-serving confession was written by someone in Donald Trump's White House depicting a deranged and incompetent president and a bureaucracy of saboteurs striving nobly to save the nation from its own leader. Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike 
Mike Pompeo and Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Ben Carson uh, have so far stepped forward to rule themselves out, thereby reminding us that Ben Carson is in fact still alive. So that's that's something. Um, Mary, the, the op-ed itself, did it actually tell us anything we either didn't know or couldn't have guessed? Well, I don't think it did. I mean, it confirmed a lot of people's um, worst suspicions about what's going on in this White House. Um, but it did so, I think I, it has to be said, um, with a degree of style and verve. I mean, this was a great energetic article. I mean, I was deeply envious of whoever had written it. <laughs> well, on that note, Matthew, is this somebody angling for a book deal? Because they, they're, <laughs> they're going to get busted. It's not so difficult to get a book deal, though, is it? <laughs> if you've worked in the Trump White House. Don't you think there's another way of looking at this? Uh, could it be really this is the, um, the, 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 the Republican Party essentially deciding to do its damage limitation uh, move before the elections coming up in November? They've got a lot of what they want done in terms of legislation or, or some of what they want done in terms of legislation, deregulation and, and so on. Um, they all know that Trump is is a, is is literally a kind of man child stranded behind in the Oval Office who's not capable of the intellectual or 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 other kind of capacity needed to actually perform the functions of president but he's been a useful idiot up to now but there comes a point where you have to throw the useful idiot under the bus and i'm wondering whether this there may be more strategy behind this uh, op-ed than than simply one in one individual deciding to uh, break ranks and and do the right thing in quotes. I, I did wonder exactly that same thing, which may suggest that the two of us have been journalists far too long. Um, Mary, <laughs> do you, do you think there's actually anything in that that the Republicans are starting to realise that they they're going to get clobbered in November? Uh, they're starting to realise that therefore this this present circus in the White House may be uh, nearing a natural conclusion. And of course, yeah, they. they they don't want to be remembered as the party of Trump, certainly in 2020. Is this the first shove of Donald Trump towards the wheels of the oncoming uh, bus that Matthew invoked? No, I mean, I think there might be quite a lot in that. Um, but I think there may also be... Um, not just looking to beyond the Trump era, um, but also um, a sense, you know, the way, I mean, what struck me about this was that I, I don't think I could imagine um, a British operative, um, whether in the civil service or whether as part of government, writing an article like that. Um, and part of it is the American system that actually, you know, it's, it's allowed in a way Donald Trump to be caged one way or the other. You know, if you look at Russia policy, he's been caged by Congress. And now it appears also by his, his own guys in the White House. Um, so to that extent, the checks and balances are sort of all over the place, not just in the uh, in, in the Constitution. Um, the other thing is I wondered whether the people it was also designed to send a message to um, were abroad to say, in a way, don't you worry too much because this guy is actually under control, even Normal though it may not look will be to you. Resumed. And, 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 and there, was this, there, there was this sort of line which said, you know, some, something like, you know, perceptive observers may realise that there is, you know, a dual track going on here in the White House. Um, and it seemed to me that that might be a sort of message sent out there to say, not only 
this may be over one day, um, but also don't you worry because the further flights of this are actually not happening. Uh, Matthew, it, it did appear, of course, in the same week as some, some picturesque advanced excerpts of Bob Woodward's oh, uh, yes. a, a, up, upcoming book <laughs> on Trump, which I, I suspect is going to do more damage uh, than... Uh, what's his name, Michael Wolfe's uh, earlier piece, Bob Woodward being Bob Woodward and having the whole Bob Woodwardness of Bob Woodward behind him. Uh, and a lot of the quotes he has sourced, which have been furiously denied by everybody, but they do sound quite plausible. And on the one hand, it is all quite funny, um, but on, and actually in its own way reassuring. But is there a level at which an actually quite unhappy precedent is being set here that the you know, and, and the elected leader of a country uh, is being deliberately thwarted and ignored by people who are paid by the citizens uh, to carry out the president's wishes. I think most British prime ministers will probably <laughs> sympathise with being in that. You've seen Yes Minister. Um, I mean, to me, people talk about how amazing the latest twists and turns are in the Trump saga. I still think it's amazing that he's even in the White House. That, that's the question that we should always be returning to. But I, I agree. I mean... I agree Bob Woodward's book is has got some incredible hair-raising revelations in it by the sounds of it. But do they really affect Trump's base? That that's the real issue, isn't it? The the, the needle doesn't really move for his hardcore is they, I, I, they just don't take it in. They but, they but, can't but, hear it. They they can't understand it. They, they they're impervious to it because they're so emotionally invested in this authoritarian kind of father figure, that that rational argument is not going to reach them. There is always that core, though. An another guest on this programme uh, quite <laughs> recently, I think Dave, uh, David Patrikarikos, pointed out that you know, the week before Nixon resigned, he still had an approval rating in the mid to high 20%. Yeah. Uh, and that, which, so it, it just... Tr Trump presses very deep kind of primal buttons in the psyche for some people and and there's no arguing with that there's no reasoning with that unfortunately i also think just to, just as a footnote that i'm i'm not entirely sure that um the bob woodward book is going to have um more influence more impact than the wolf book i think the wolf book had the the element of being first the element of surprise the element of being highly accessible in the way it was written um i've got practically a bookshelf of bob woodward books and actually the further they go on the less readable they <laughs> <laughs> they are unbelievably dense in a very American journalistic way. Of everything is quoted, everything is sourced. Every, I mean, it, it, and it just makes things really, really difficult to read. Uh, just on a question of journalistic ethics, uh, Mary, should, should the New York Times have run this piece? I don't see why not. I would have run it. I've been a comment editor. I would have run it absolutely. I would have cleared the page for it. And, and Matthew, I guess to, to, to further that question with your, your investigative reporter's hat on, are we now in the position where the New York Times has no choice but to free its own reporters to discover who actually wrote this? Well, this is and, what's so interesting, isn't it, is that they say they have a Chinese wall yes. and that the identity is known to the editorial department but not to the White House reporters. I wonder how... How, how firm that Chinese wall will remain. I mean, it would be brilliant if tomorrow morning's New York front page was yeah. just revealed. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Yeah. But, but in a way, isn't this the fascinating thing about the whole Trump phenomenon, is that it's a mirror for, for absurdity and almost... It, for all, every, anyone who looks into that mirror sees a little bit of themselves staring back, and that's the terrifying thing about the Trump White House. There's something much more going on than just 
that there's a kind of crazy person in the White House. It's the way all the, the the way we just spend so much time talking about him, and the way book after book comes out that, that all say the same thing, that, which is what we could all see before he was elected, and we're still talking about it. He he's captured so much of our collective consciousness. I, I just find it terrifying. I think he should be. I think there should be a Trump-free month. <laughs> but, but I think the the other side of that is that. Trump seems to be sort of causing the absolute chaos and havoc and we're all talking about it. But I think the American system, the constitutional system, has actually stood up extraordinarily well to having so somebody far, so far, so far, to having somebody who is so unpredictable, flaky, um, certainly out of tune with the Washington establishment. It's not really been rocked so far. Uh, just a final thought from each of you on this before we move on. Who's your bet for who actually wrote it? Mary? I don't have a bet for who wrote it. I would just say that I would imagine that it's somebody in the sort of communication speech writing operation and somebody fairly low down rather than high up. Matthew? My money's on Mike Pence. <laughs> I just love the idea of... The guy standing right behind his shoulder, sticking the knife in. And Mike Pence, is, who, who has... Not, not literally, I should but, add. But also... M- metaphorically. Supporting your theory, of course, is the fact that Mike Pence has denied it. <laughs> That's a, a, another great yes ministerism. Don't believe anything until it's been officially denied. Uh, on that note, we will take a short break. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Mary Dijewski and Matthew Green. Coming up next, what are 21st century Germans most scared of? Tired of saying the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat or take a dip, our comprehensive guides are packed with tips, essays and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's Travel Guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Matthew Green. Now, since 1992, the German insurance company R&V has been conducting an annual survey into Angste der Deutschen, or the fears of the Germans, for which you would have hoped that there would be some 17-syllable compound noun, but never mind. This year's results have just been released, and there is good news for Donald Trump, in that there is now one poll in which he can truthfully claim to be polling big numbers. He's topped this one with 69%, ahead of worry about the integration of immigrants, the ability of German politicians to cope with stuff, uh, terrorism, the Eurozone debt crisis and the environment. Um, Mary, I'm I'm always slightly sceptical of surveys uh, of this because what they generally tell us, and do stop me if you think I'm wrong, is that nearly 100% of people don't really understand very much about the world or how it works. Well, I think maybe if you were looking at a sort of cast of international characters, the Germans would probably be among the best informed. Um, True and the ones who felt most responsible about the need to be well informed. So um, I think they're probably quite uh, quite a good nation to poll with the, with, with these sort of questions. Um, my problem with this uh, with, with, with this survey is that it seems to me that although you know, as you say, that there are worries about um, Trump and his international influence are top the polls. Um, 
Second and third are both questions relating to asylum seekers, migrants, refugees, um, one of them about the government's ability to cope, the other one about integration. And it seems to me that this is an absolutely classic example of how you ask the question. And if those questions had been put together, then Germans' main preoccupation would not actually have been Donald Trump. It would have been migration. And that if you want to be really conspiratorial about it, that the questions had been deliberately framed to divide the migration question to make very sure that it wasn't going to be top of the poll. Uh, Matthew, you were talking earlier about how the, the, the sheer oddness of Trump's presidency has completely altered uh, our view of what is normal and what isn't, to the point where it struck me that it barely seems weird that you find Germans are now in 2018 more frightened by an order of magnitude of the president of the United States than they are of the president of Russia. Well, quite, because in a sense, he he is the personification of so many of our fears and so much of what we... Uh, what many people aspire that the values that we aspire to reject or, or rather the kind of antithesis of the values we'd like to embody so i don't think it's surprising in a way that he's got this kind of bugbear type um role in in the german psyche but i think it was very interesting what you mentioned the fact that the environment polled last in a way because you know well, it, didn't, it didn't poll last I mean, it, it I'm was sure, low but it was know, low on spiders the, and heights yeah. were further down <laughs> but it was low on the list and, and it, it was it, below 50 percent. yeah it's interesting isn't it because i mean i've been working on a big project looking at the impact of climate change on the oceans lately and this stuff is terrifying really if we were living in a more sort of sane and rational society, we'd spend a lot less time talking about Donald Trump and a lot more time talking about the fact that our planetary life support system is now flashing red on virtually every single available indicator. I, you know, it's a discussion we've had off air, but I, I, I find it, I find this stuff absolutely terrifying. But it, it's still something, it's the thing we don't like to talk about. It's the thing that makes dinner party polite chit-chat grind to a halt. It's the thing that even in newsrooms gets kind of nervous laughter when you actually say, guys, like, <laughs> there's a real problem here. I mean, quite It sounds like the Germans are the same. Well, I guess, is it, is it because with something like Trump, Mary, you, you can say it, it's hard to be frightened, I think, of things you don't entirely you know, actually understand. And Trump is quite understandable. He's this obviously, you know, un unqualified, absurd figure uh, who has been elected to a position of absolutely extraordinary, indeed existential power, if you like. So uh, that's, yeah, that's that's a comprehensible proposition, whereas climate change, yeah. uh, as, as, as Matthew delineates, is a, a complex uh, and imposing subject. There may also be a, be a sort of short-term, long-term thing about it, that um, Trump is a very immediate immediate threat um, and particularly I would think to to Germans first of all because you know they're, they're so wedded to the idea of sort of order and predictability but also because they even more I would say than the British look to the Atlantic Alliance as their mm. sort of source of reliability um, so I think they would be especially worried about that they, they also have but, a fairly recent ancestral memory of being ruled by an authoritarian that is also that's also true, um, but he, I think that Trump is is sort of he's there all the time in the media all the time, and people see him as something that is short term but urgent, whereas 
climate change. You know, it's something that's always going to be there and it is so long term and maybe there's nothing really we can do about it. So I can sort of understand why it might have shrunk down to 48%. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, American listeners who do vote in the midterm elections on November 6th will be able, will, will be, will be able to, who would put that phrase in a radio script, will be able to celebrate flinging their handful of sand into the vast roiling sea of the electorate's gullibility by attending opening day of the first film ever released on an election day. It is the thematically congruent The Front Runner, in which Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart, the Colorado senator widely tipped for the 1988 Democratic nomination for president until unhorsed by a scandal pertaining to his conduct of his personal life, this being a thing that still mattered then. Can anybody without looking it up name who actually won the 1988 Democratic (laughs) nomination? Come on, guys, this is dead air. Just because you ask us impossible question, we should have really I been know, Googling. I was, I admit to being going to look but it they, up and never got round to it. They obviously didn't become president. So no, no, they, 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 got, they got thoroughly tanned by uh, G.H.W. Bush. Uh, it, it, it was Mike Dukakis. Oh. A, a, a man claimed uh, by the onrushing tide of history fairly I, swiftly. I, I was yeah. still staggered by your use of the word unhorsed and pertained in the same sentence on I, air, I, I, and I, so flawlessly as well. I, I, do like, I, do like, I do like a good unhorsed. Uh, it, is, it is perhaps second only to defenestrated. Um, but this film, to return to it, the front runner about Gary Hart and his, his, his failure to win the nomination, I really hope that was Michael Dukakis in 1988. I'm going to sound really stupid. I'm pretty confident. It was. I'm getting the thumbs up from the production booth. Um, are either of you excited to see this film? I'll ask you first, Mary. Are you a sucker for the, the fi- semi fictionalised political drama? Um, In this case, absolutely. Um, And more in the American case than the British case, because faction is something that I really, really detest. Um, But I don't think this is faction. This is based on a biography and an account of the campaign um, by one of um, the leading political journalists, Matt Bay. Um, So I think on those counts, I tend to sort of trust it, but also think that it would be an absolutely fantastic romp. I mean, you know, I at least you know remember the pictures of the boat and the business of Donna Rice sort of coming off the boat and the boat being called the monkey business. And, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was just all so absolutely spectacular. Um, but I, I also wonder, I mean, you know, you look at it in the context of today and you say, well, you know, those sort of problems, um, they don't appear to have diminished Trump's political p- political chances. Um, he's sort of come out okay at the, at the end of it and the, the, the electorate turned a blind eye to them, whereas with Gary Hart they didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th- I think that people turned a blind eye to them with JFK, they turned a blind eye to that sort of thing with Bill Clinton. Um, so I think maybe Gary Hart was just a weaker candidate on other fronts as well. Um, well, to John, be Ed, John by Edwards was, of, of course, cleaned up by a, oh, a John Edwards scandal. was a disaster. Yeah. Th- that'll be a heck of a movie when that comes out. Uh, Matthew, do, do you have any particular favourite political films or faction or semi-fiction? Are you a fan of the genre? Uh, the th- is it? It's the thick of it, isn't it? That the the 
the UK politics one that was out a few years uh, ago. The, the in, in the Loop was it, the cinema, was the movie version. I've not seen them. Yeah, I've not seen the movie version, but the TV program was fantastic. Um, yeah, well, I think that was very much a successor to to Yes Minister. Yeah, uh, it in, was the kind of modern version. But but it always struck me as indicative uh, of the cultural political differences between the United States and the United Kingdom. When the Americans make a, a TV version of their politics, they get the West Wing. Exactly. It's sort of this this, this grand uplifting, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, noble moral fable. Whereas whereas the British make Yes Minister in the thick of it. Although, but but Yes Minister actually was a pivotal program in so many ways, wasn't it? Because it, it really did illustrate very clearly what what was actually going on. I mean, faction is not a word we like, but nonetheless, well, that there was, was a lot of truth being told through that program. It, it, it was as satire as documentary, yeah. and, and it became clear as the program went on, and it, the same was true for the thick of it. They were getting fed yeah, stories from yeah, and it, inside. And it, it resonates today. I mean, so many of the dynamics between the civil service and the elected politicians and all the kind of skullduggery that goes on is absolutely... Nailed it, and it's still relevant. You could, I reckon, you could watch Yes Minister now, and it would still feel quite fresh. Well, I oh, think, I haven't. I think, it does. Sh- I think they showed Yes Minister. They had a sort of day of sort of retrospective Yes yeah. Minister about a year ago. Um, but I, I think it's also used for, um, uh, as they say, training purposes, um, both in the civil service, um, but also for English teaching at sort of graduate level, um, as sort of introduction both to the language and to the culture. I think that's quite a good use for <laughs> it, really. <laughs> Uh, it is. Does anybody just quickly have a, 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 any other favourite political TV or film things they would like to give a plug? I just want to use this space to say that I don't never understood what the House of Cards thing was, the American version, which I just thought was boring and terrible. Anybody? I've never seen that one. No, you're not no. missing much. This is this is ending the program on a terrifically downbeat <laughs> note. So, somebody no, say, I, would, what, what, I know what's the thing I liked. It was... The first film I saw when I arrived in Washington as correspondent was Air Force One. And <laughs> Air Force One is just a spectacular introduction to everything American political. So I was including hopes and fears. So I, I, I think um, that would come quite close to the top wow, of the list. Wow, that, that posting must have seemed, seemed a letdown if that's how it started. Uh, that does bring us to the ending of today's show. Mary Dijewski and Matthew Green, thanks very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Bichon. Checo Research by Anna Savetska. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist with Carlotta Ribello. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.